listening to First Church Charlotte. Greetings, everyone. Pastor Nathan here. It is a joy to spend a little bit of time with you. Thank you for uh, giving me some of that time. We want to look at some scripture together. I want to direct your attention to the Garden of Gethsemane. We hold that that moment of scripture, that, that moment within the story of Christ's passion. We hold that with tenderness because there is a There are spiritual depths here. There is uh, the beautiful theme of sacrifice. Greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for a friend. And Christ went beyond that in that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. And so this this moment of Gethsemane has a special resonance within our devotion, or perhaps it should. Um, Here, Jesus is making that final submission of flesh to, to spirit, not my will. If there's any other way, then let's try that. But if there's not, not my will, but thy will be done. This weekend prayer and reflection, I, I began to think of this moment of Gethsemane a, a little bit differently, and that was simply not as, not as a moment of Christ being tested, uh, it, it very much uh, is that. Uh, it shows that. But more than that, the disciples being tested. They almost seem as set pieces in the larger story. But what if, what if this moment is, is in some way instructive of the test the disciple, the disciple endures? Um, the exact location of Gethsemane is, is unknown. If you visit the Holy Land, your tour guide will take you to a Garden of Gethsemane, but we don't know if that is uh, in in the Garden of Gethsemane because, first of all, it wasn't a ceremonial garden. Uh, Nowadays we have ceremonial gardens. There's, you know, fountains and and statues and uh, memorials. That's not what Gethsemane was. Gethsemane was a working garden. Gethsemane was an orchard of olive trees, and there in this orchard was a working olive press. And so there would have been this area that was uh, kind of like a work area. And all around this olive press, there would have been um, piles of olives harvested and uh, held in, in, in rough material sacks, like a burlap-type sack. And that's, that's how they harvested. And then they would pile these olives on this press. And the press was a, uh, a large log that had been cut in a square and they would, using various winches and the like, they would, they would compress that, that beam on those olives. And out of the compressed, the, the smashed olives would flow the olive oil. Uh, these images are not accidental. Remember, the word of the Lord always, almost always, I should say, teaches us an image. Uh, this is why, whether it's the story of creation with Adam and Eve in a garden, uh, whether it is the Hebrew poet offering praise and worship and ultimately prophecy with the beautiful image-filled language of the Hebrew poet, uh, whether they're writing about God or things to come or whether it is the prophet who's prophesying of an uncertain future. They all are using images. 
And why is this important? All aspiring Bible students should understand this. Um, unfortunately, uh, when I was in uh, Bible school, this was not. We spent a whole lot more time debating the literal uh, possibilities of biblical language than we did understanding the nature in which God speaks of things we cannot know, the spiritual realm, the eternal realm, in the terms of things we both know and have emotional attachment to, imagery, do you see? Um, I hope I didn't complicate that, but I I want you to see these images. And so here you have uh, a working garden. Uh, Why are they here? It's not like they had no place to go. They aren't at this moment uh, homeless, so to speak. Now, they at times had been homeless, uh, but they had procured a large room that we would know and we would celebrate as the upper room. This was a large room, large enough for over 100 people. They had the Last Supper there. This is where the disciples would come back to after uh, the crucifixion of the Lord. Uh, This is where the Holy Spirit would fall. Uh, They had a place to go. They had a place to pray. That's not where Jesus asked them to pray. Jesus took them out of the city to the foot of the Mount of Olives. And you can see the association. Uh, Mount of Olives is a place of vineyards, a place of of orchards. And at the base of it is this working uh, olive uh, press, this this garden, this this orchard of, of, of workmen. And Jesus goes here to pray. Imagine a pastor saying, we're going to have an all-night prayer meeting, but we're not doing it at the church. <clears throat> we're doing it at the park. We're doing it at the National Forest. <laughs> we're doing it down at the timber mill. <laughs> That's where we're going to pray. Here they are, and here Jesus has a great heaviness upon him, and he, he is seeing the, the, he has understanding He is seeing what is about to transpire. The disciples, they aren't seeing. So for them, uh, prayer isn't spiritual struggle, battle, or uh, contest. For them, prayer is duty. You see, because they do not see. And when your prayer is duty, it's very, very hard to stay awake. Now, I don't want to say that and give you the idea that some of us spiritual people, prayer is not duty for us. No, that's, that's, that's folly. Um, Prayer can feel like duty for anybody. Uh, Depending on where you are, what you're going through, prayer can be uh, exhausting, it can be tiring, it can be hard work. But whatever that is, however you're experiencing it, in this moment, for the disciples, they they don't see the weight of uh, the contest that's happening. They, They don't see the snare that the enemy has laid for Jesus and As a result, for them, prayer is simply duty. Whereas for Jesus, prayer is a a spiritual contest. It is a battle. And so uh, here we are in this this garden of note. And it isn't just the olives being pressed. Uh, It is Jesus being pressed. And in the same manner that the Old Testament uses olive oil as a sign of anointing, in that same manner, the olive press is going to crush the, uh, the, 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 the bunches of olives. And out of that crushing is going to flow the anointing. Uh, olive trees are not fast growers. They're not bamboo. They don't just hop up. Uh, but they are long-lived once they, once they grow. 
Um, if you would go to the Holy Land now, uh, you would you would be taken by your guide to a place, and they probably would tell you it's the uh, Garden of Gethsemane. But um, like I said earlier, they don't know the the Roman Catholic Church has one area at the foot of Mount Olives that that's that they say that's the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Greek Orthodox has a church has another area at the foot of Mount Olives, and. Uh, interestingly, because us Christian folks don't like to get along with each other, the Russian Orthodox, they have another location. And actually, I think, I don't, I'm not sure, but I think there's a fourth location that is debatably uh, the place of Gethsemane. Uh, the interesting thing there is um, that's uh, very, it's hard by the tomb of Mary. Uh, the point is not physical location. The point is here, this working orchard, this working olive press where uh, Jesus has taken his disciples to pray, and they are surrounded by bunches of olives, and the air is heavy with the smell of crushed olives. And this is the ground where the excess oil has permeated the ground. And this image, remember, we're taught spiritual things through image. This uh, olive oil is an image of the anointing. And it's not quick to grow. Uh, and, but when it comes of size and comes of maturity, it is crushed. And out of this comes uh, the anointing oil. Um, so the final test for the disciples, remember we're, we're looking at this from the perspective of the disciples, not just simply as a test that Jesus represents of flesh submitting to spirit. Um, we're looking at it as a test of disciples because after this moment, everything's going to change. This is the end of Jesus being with them. It's not that they don't have tests in their future. They do. It's not that they don't have trials in their future. They, of course, do. The challenge is that this is the last test of its type. After this, Jesus is taken from them. Uh, their, how shall we say this? This is the last test of their preparation. And here, the test is not how wise they are. I mean, wisdom helps, but that's not the test. The test is not even how, uh, how powerful they are. The test is much more ordinary than that. The test is, can they stay awake? Think about that. This last test of their spiritual time of preparation when Christ is with, with them is not how eloquently they can pray. It's can they stay awake and keep praying. It's not whether or not they can discourse on Old Testament prophecy and law and the like. Can they stay awake? Now this really uh, strikes me because I, I feel like there is, a, there is a kernel of truth here that is directly applicable to our Christian lives. Can we stay awake? Not do we understand all things. We don't. Not have we arrived at some spiritual perfection. You haven't. <laughs> I mean, I'm close. <laughs> it's, it's not, do we now, can we now explain the hard sayings of Christ? No. It's much, it's much simpler than that. Can you stay awake? So the challenge for the church and every generation that has followed, it is, can the church stay awake? Can the church stay zealous? Can the church stay focused? Now, all of us live this out in the seasons of our life. And some of us have 
success in certain seasons and we struggle in others. I, I've known some people um, who they really struggled to serve God as a young, as a young person or a young adult, um, but once their life calmed down, they were really high commitment. I know other people that, man, they were, they were like powerhouses in their early years, but it's the, the middle years that got them. And uh, I, to be honest with you, as a, uh, a pastor and not simply trying to be a figurehead, but trying to, in some way, uh, continually be inviting people to, the, to a, a spiritual path and a spiritual way and a, a kingdom purpose and a divine calling, um, I, I, I am saddened, and it's not just me. Many of us are, are, are deeply saddened by people who had so much talent. They had so much ability. They may even have been leaders among us at times, um, but they could not stay awake. That final test of the preparation of the disciple, can you simply stay awake? And so here we see these disciples all struggling to stay awake. Jesus isn't having a difficulty because he sees, he perceives the spiritual moment. Uh, the disciples, to them, their prayer is duty, it's obligation. It's my God, I wish they'd dismiss the service. Um, and so they fall asleep. Uh, there's a, a few truths. Let me give you four truths about being asleep. Number one, it's a state of ignorance. Um, when you are asleep, you, they, they, there could be a parade going on uh, down the road. And if, as long as you're not woke up by it, um, you have no idea what's going on. Your house can be on fire and you don't even know what's going on. Uh, you're asleep. It's a state of ignorance. Secondly, it's a state of apathy. Um, you just don't care. It's like when you're tired in the morning, your alarm goes off and you know you have things to do, but you just don't care. And the only thing that makes you get up and go to work is you don't want to lose your job. Uh, that's it. <laughs> if it wasn't for that, you would have slept in. You know what I'm talking about. Number three, uh, the person who's asleep is, a, is in a state of, of, of serious vulnerability. They can't protect themselves. They're hopeless. You can walk right up on them. Uh, and number four, it is a state of uh, inaction. Nothing's getting done. You are asleep. So rather than asking ourselves, am I spiritually asleep? Um, Here's a four-step process. Um, am I satisfied to be spiritually ignorant? Do it, am I unaware of the battles that are happening? Am I, am, am, does, am I not moved in my spirit to be a part of a uh, force of prayer and spiritual commitment and uh, missional purpose? Or am I just, I'm happy in my state of ignorance? Or uh, am I spiritually apathetic? I mean, I kind of care. You know, the key word there being kind of. Um, am I spiritually vulnerable? Do I not have a sense of how the enemy would tempt me? Do I not have a sense of how the enemy would attack the church? Uh, worse yet, am I so spiritually apathetic and vulnerable that the enemy could use me to be the one who the vector of attack comes through simply because um, I'm asleep spiritually? And lastly, am I in a state of inaction? Uh, am I just spiritually passive? If any of these four things are true for us, it probably would be helpful for us to um, find us a prayer closet and say, Lord, don't let me be asleep in Zion. Don't let me fail the final test of the disciples' preparation, this last test of the season of their discipleship when it's not how powerful they are. It's not how 
eloquent they are. It's not whether or not they can lead the worship team. It's simply this. Can you stay awake? Can you stay focused? Um, There's another parable in the Bible that in the same manner brings this question to the forefront. And that is the the parable of the, the, the foolish virgins. And they are waiting. They are waiting for the bridegroom. And the Bible says they all slumbered and slept. Uh, and while they slumbered and slept, um, the candle went out. Uh, they were given the care of that candle. They were expressing in symbol their diligence, uh, their, their, their focus by keeping that, that lantern lit, so to speak, uh, that wick burning. And they fell. They, they somehow slumber and sleep. Uh, this image uh, in the scripture should teach us something. It should... It should challenge us somehow because that is right where we are. That is right where we live. The challenge of staying spiritually awake, uh, not just slumping back in our PJs. <laughs> Sounds lovely, doesn't it? <laughs> not simply enjoying our quiet cups of coffee. Um, not, not, not simply you know, scheduling our entertainments and planning our, our, our day, but staying spiritually awake. What helps you stay spiritually awake? I know the obvious things are your daily uh, devotional times, your daily uh, prayer, your quiet time. That helps you stay spiritually awake. Um, going to church with other people helps you stay awake. Church is so invaluable in that it keeps people. Uh, we're at different seasons, different sets of trials, and so someone who is hurting might can encourage, can be encouraged by someone who is strong. This is this is biblical. Uh, other things you can do is make sure your house is filled with worship, uh, music you listen to. Um, uh, find find uh, you know some way to celebrate. You might enjoy listening to teaching and preaching, and that's why our church, uh, along with many other churches, uh, tries to make all this content available um, so you can you can you can stir yourself. But I've saved the most important thing for last: to stay spiritually awake. You ever been driving and you're falling asleep and you know it, you're dangerous and so you stop your car, you get out of your car and you walk up and down the road or you do jumping jacks, something to get your blood moving. I do the same thing. Um, quit sitting there. Do something for God. The best thing, the most simplest way that I can think of to wake yourself spiritually is to do something. Don't stay in a state of spiritual apathy, but stir yourself. Uh, make sure your lamp is trimmed and burning bright. Stir yourself. Uh, action will keep you keep you awake. Paul uses the same uh, image of wakefulness in Ephesians chapter number five, where at the uh, the first several verses of chapter number five, he gives us very practical, very very practical. Uh, discipleship teaching, not theological insight, not rhetorical brilliance, discipleship teaching. He tells us to imitate God. You are his children, imitate God. He tells us to live a life filled with love, following the example of Jesus Christ. And Christ demonstrated that love for us. He offered himself as a sacrifice for for our covering, for our sins. And as a result, we try to live a life that way. And he gives very practical things. He mentions um, that we should avoid sexual immorality, um, sexual impurity and greed 
Interesting that he puts greed with those things, uh, sexual immorality. It's all lust problem. Um, he said these sins have no place among God's people. Uh, he, he asked us to comport ourselves, to carry ourselves in a way where we're not, we don't reveal to our world a, a tremendous interest in the things of the world. What, what we reveal is, is a longer-term view, a longer focus, um, not to be fooled by uh, those who try to excuse their sins, not to think that we can in some way uh, trick God and, and in some way. And then he says this, uh, verse 13, but evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines. For the light makes everything visible. That's why it is said, Awake, O sleeper, rise up from the dead, and Christ, Christ will give you light. Lord Jesus, I'm praying that you would let us live this spiritual admonition, that we would stir ourselves, that we would not fail the the final test of discipleship, which was simply to stay awake. Help us to stay awake, O God. If there's any of us who have drifted into a type of uh, spiritual passivity, stir us, O God, stir us. Don't let us lose purpose and mission. Don't let us lose a spiritual zeal and focus. Stir us, O God, stir me, stir our our church, stir our, our teams. O Lord Jesus, we've got to keep our eyes focused on you. We've got to show that although there's many things we don't know how to do and many things we cannot accomplish, there's one thing we will do, and we will stay awake and keep our eyes on the spiritual moment, not simply view uh, prayer and, 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 and spiritual focus as, as duty and slide off into a, a, a slumber, a spiritual slumber. Stir us, O Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, Starting this Sunday, we're going to be kicking off seven days of prayer and fasting. It'll be the first week of February. Seven days of prayer and fasting. Uh, We'll mention it again Sunday. The following Sunday, after seven days of prayer and fasting, we will be having a communion service together. Uh, So if you are part of our online audience, um, we love you. We get it. It's okay. You'll need to prepare for that. So you'll need uh, some type of unleavened bread or unsalted cracker or something like that. And you'll need fruit of the vine uh, for for that, um, that communion that we take together. We love you. God bless you. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come worship with us.